Good morning. I'm Clay Smith, the lead pastor at Alistair Baptist Church. It's about 11.14 a.m. Uh, here in uh, the Eastern Daylight Sa- time, Savings Time Zone. I'm so glad that you've joined us for this online service. Before I begin the message today, I do want to take just a moment and remember to pray for those who are suffering from the virus, those who are grieving losses, and those who are providing frontline care. Let's join together and pray. Father, this is a time when we truly realize how much we need you. This is a virus that we cannot cure no matter how smart we are. We need your hand of protection. I pray, Father, for those who are suffering, that they would recover. I pray your mercy would extend to many. Father, I know there are people who are dying, and we're not, we're not sure why that is, but God, we ask you to comfort those families. Watch over and protect those who are providing care, doctors and nurses and EMTs, first responders of all kinds. Father, I know there are families that are anxious. Please bring them a peace and a calm and a reassurance that they can trust you. Bless us now as we look at your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to suspend your present state of being, to enter into the land of imagination. I want you to imagine that you are someone different, someone in the Bible. I want you to imagine that you are King David. Now, I know for some of you, that's quite a stretch. First of all, you have a hard time imagining you're a king, and then Secondly, you have a hard time imagining that you're David, one of the great figures in the Bible, because you as David would have had an amazing life. You, you started having seven brothers. You were the eighth brother. And of course, as the youngest, you were picked on most of your life. Your older brothers made sure that you never got away with anything. When you were about eight years old, you were sent out to do a man's job to watch over your father's flock. And the only thing you had to protect you was your shepherd's rod. And you would use this to poke the sheep to go in the right direction. You would use this to make sure that the sheep didn't wander too far away. And when you were about nine years old, a bear came out of the woods to attack your flock. And you were the only thing standing between that bear's teeth and the lambs under your care. And so you took that rod and you whopped that bear upside the head and you killed him. And about a year later, similar situation, a lion came and was about to attack and kill one of your sheep. And again, you took your staff and your courage and you, you beat off the lion Then one day when you were out watching over your father's sheep, one of your older brothers came to you and said, I don't know what's going on, but they want you up at the house. The old prophet Samuel has come and he's looking for one of dad's sons and he finally asked us if this was the only sons that he had and we said, well, there is the youngest, but he's out in the field watching over the sheep. He said, I'm not gonna eat the feast you prepared for me until I meet the youngest son. You're just as puzzled by this as your older brother. So you go back to your dad's house with your shepherd's rod still in your hand and and there is the old prophet Samuel. And he looks at you and his face lights up and suddenly he's a younger man. He 
he anoints your head with some oil and he mumbles some prayer over you. And you can't quite catch all of it, but one thing you heard for sure, that you were now the anointed of the Lord. And from that day on, it feels like you've got a new power, a new relationship with God. When you're out watching your sheep at night, you, when the sheep are laying down, you, you make up songs. You play them on your lyre. They're really for you, but they bring you a comfort. Then one day your dad calls you and says, I've got an errand for you to run. I want you to take these supplies up to your brothers. They're in the army. And so you go to where your brothers are fighting in the battle, except there's really not a fight. They're all just lined up along the edge of a valley. And there's a giant of a man down in that valley who is saying, someone from Israel come out and fight me, winner take all. You expect your brothers to get up and go, but they don't. And you look around for the other soldiers and they don't go either. And so finally you decide you will go, even though really you're just 12 years old. And you refuse to fight with the king's armor. It's too big for you. Instead, you take your sling, which you've had with you for a long time. It's one of your other weapons. You pause and you pick up five smooth stones. And one of them, you launch. It lands smack dab in the middle of Goliath's forehead. And just to make sure he's really dead, when he falls to the ground, you run forward, grab his big sword, and you cut his head off. And that one event changes your life forever. You are now made part of Saul's household staff. Paul, Saul takes a, a real shine to you. And whenever you play a harp and sing some of your songs for him, it seems to calm him down for Saul is a troubled soul. But he's also very mercurial. Saul sometimes seems to really like you and sometimes he seems to really hate you. He hates it when you get credit for your performance in battles and he doesn't. Sometimes it feels like he's trying to kill you and then one day you realize he really is trying to kill you and you realize if you stick around, you're gonna be just like Goliath, headless. And so you gather some people who are loyal to you and you flee into the wilderness and Saul spends a lot of time chasing you down. He should be out fighting battles for his people. And it seems like over and over again, God delivers you. Whenever it feels like there's no escape, God makes a way. And then Saul dies in battle. And the people of Israel decide to make you the new king. And you're a good king. You lead people into battles. You set a personal example you are able to conquer some enemies that Israel has never been able to conquer. You're often honored as the conquering king. And you, you do your best to make good decisions that benefit as many people as possible. You do your best to try to, to bring all these tribes together. And all the way, you know that God is with you. But then like most successful people, get a little cocky. It's the spring. The kings are supposed to be going to war at this time, but you're getting middle-aged and you know you kind of feel like, man, do I have to go out and battle again? So you stay home while your army goes and fights. It's kind of dull in the capital. You go up on the roof of your palace. You look out, you see this beautiful woman taking a bath. 
You sin for her. You sleep with her. She gets pregnant. But you're the king. You figure out you can cover this up. You call her husband, a guy named Uriah, back from the battle. And he comes, and, but he doesn't go to stay with his wife. Instead, he just he comes and sleeps at the palace. And when Uriah doesn't cooperate with your little cover-up plan, you decide to conspire with the commander of your army to have him killed. There's another word for that. It's murder. And sure enough, Uriah dies in a battle because all the other soldiers fell back. They had a command that Uriah didn't know about. And you try to wait just the right amount of time. You bring that woman, Bathsheba, into your house. Child is born. You think you've gotten away with it. But about a year after that child is born, Nathan the prophet comes to you and tells you that God knows all about your sin. And God's not very happy with you. And then you realize your relationship with God has gotten a little stale, kind of going through the motions. And all of a sudden, God's presence comes thundering back into your life. Your little boy gets sick. You plead for God to spare him, but the little boy dies. And you, you make the connection, this is your fault. You caused your own child's death. And it turns out you're, you're a pretty good king, but you're a really lousy father. One of your sons rapes his sister. Another son kills the first son in revenge. And then that son eventually tries to overthrow you as king. He's killed in a battle, and it breaks your heart because you feel like maybe if you'd been a better father, this wouldn't have happened. And now, now you're old. You're not at the finish line, but you can see it. And you decide that maybe you need to do what all the other kings do. You need to take a census of all the men who can fight in battle in your country. So you call in the commander of your army, Joab, and you say, let's take a census. And, and Joab, who's not the most religious guy, says to you, oh, king, let's not do that. Let's let God handle the numbers. And let's just, let's just trust him. But you have your mind made up. You're the king after all. Maybe you made that decision because you're a little insecure. You got a little anxiety. Things are not as easy as they used to be. Things hurt in your body that didn't used to hurt. You, you know you can't go out and, and lead the troops in battle anymore. Your age is telling on you. So you've made this decision. You, it feels good to, to have some authority and say, we're going to do this whether you like it or not. So Joab carries out your order. And then he comes back and he tells you the number. And, and you have more fighting men than you ever dreamed you had. But there is something about receiving this news that absolutely tears you apart. You realize your relationship with God has gotten stale again. You didn't ask God about this decision. You just did it. Your heart is heavy. You start to pray, Lord, forgive me. You're too old and too wise to try to cover this thing up like you did before. You say again and again, Lord, forgive me. This is my fault. I, I didn't trust you as I should have trusted you. 
your in-house prophet, a, a man named Gad, comes to see you and said, God knows all about this, and there's going to be a punishment. But God's going to let you pick which punishment you get. And you realize you don't want to make that choice, so you say, look, I'll trust God. Whatever God wants, I'll accept. But I really wish his punishment would fall on me and my family. A plague breaks out among your people, and they begin to die, and it's your fault. You have felt burdens before. You've seen death before, but nothing like this. People are dying not in battle. They're dying by disease, and it's your fault. You can hear reports about the families that are devastated, the people who are laid up sick because you forgot to be the leader God called you to be. You can't sleep, obviously, so you're in your room in the palace and you're tossing and turning on your bed and you're wondering, what in the world can I do? No army can solve this. I can't fight it. I just have to get through it. And while you're lying there in the early morning hours, for some reason, one of your old songs comes back into your brain. It was a song you wrote a long time ago when you were a young man. Without thinking, you start to hum it. And the words begin to come back to you. There's no one else around, so you you just break out in a low song, a low melody, and you say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And you realize you forgot. You forgot that you're not really the shepherd. You're one of the sheep. There's only one true shepherd, and it's God. And God, a long time ago, made you a promise that you would be a flock of one. The Lord is my shepherd. And you remember, that means that like a shepherd, God will take care of you. That God is gonna guide you through this crisis like he has all the crises before. That God is gonna take care of your needs. That God is going to give you what you need to get through this. And your mind clicks over to the next track of the, of the song. You think about how a good shepherd does some things, how he maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. You've done that when you were a shepherd. You made sure that your sheep took time to rest. You think about the times that God made you rest you spent so much of your young adulthood on the run, worried that Saul was out there going to get you, worried that somehow you were going to lead your little band into an impossible situation. And then word would come to you that Saul had gone a different direction and you could feel the tension go out of your body and you could feel the rest of God. You think about the times you took your sheep to a stream and, and there would be a, a pool formed by some rocks that interrupted the flow 
And the sheep would go and they would drink their fill until they were satisfied. And you think about the times that God restored your soul, how God refreshed you, how God sent some fresh wind into your sails. For a minute, you can't remember quite the next line of the song. Then it comes to you. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Somehow, God's always helped you know the right thing to do at the right time. And as you got older, it got harder because that's what decisions do. When you get older, the decisions are harder. And when you're the king, all the easy decisions get made somewhere else. But it, it seemed like when you really were walking with God, you knew, you knew the right thing to do. It was God leading you, God guiding you. And you never, ever will forget the next line of your song. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Well, you're in the valley right now, the valley of the shadow of death. People are dying up and down your kingdom, and it's your fault. And even in this darkest moment, you realize God is with you in spite of your sin, in spite of your failures, in spite of your arrogance. Even when the trouble has come that you don't understand, God is with you. It's the simplest and most hopeful of God's promises. And when you wrote that, you were living a shepherd's life. You can't help but think back to the line, thy rod. You realize what a shepherd does with his rod. He keeps the sheep on the right path. He defends the sheep. And then you realize God has a bigger rod than you have. And it is God's rod that reminds you that he's there. You never really knew how the sheep felt about being poked with your rod, but you knew that the sheep were always reminded that they had a shepherd when they felt that poke. And now God is reminding you that he really is the shepherd. He's guiding you back on the right track. And then God, God reminded you that he has a staff. You've got one. It's a piece of wood covered with gold. It sits in your throne room. There's a guard over it day and night. And that staff represents your authority. It represents that you are the king. You have the right to rule. Except now you realize you're only a pale imitation of the true king, of God himself. He's the only one that has a staff, that has the authority to really set things right. When you wrote the next line, you were thinking about that feast you shared with Samuel and your brothers. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup overfloweth. And you think about all the times that God has honored you, that when people didn't believe in you, God did. And people had to acknowledge, whether they liked you or not, that God, God was with you. 
And just like, just like Samuel anointed you for a mission a long time ago, you know what God wanted to do in your life. You have been chosen. And your cup overflows. You never dreamed this. Never in a million years. You never dreamed that one day you'd be the king. You'd be the king over such a large nation. You never dreamed it. God has given you more than you could have ever imagined or hoped. And the last line of the song comes to you. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There, laying in your bed, you think about your life. About how goodness and mercy from God has always been there. You really can only see it now in hindsight. But you can't help but think, if goodness and mercy followed me all the days of my life while I'm still alive, goodness and mercy from God must still be present. And you're not sure how and you're not sure when, but you have a feeling that God's mercy and God's goodness are going to show up in this crisis. You think about dwelling in the house of the Lord. And you realize it's not talking about a building. It's talking about where God lives. And that's where you want to be. And wherever you lay your head down is not really your home. Your home is wherever God is. And that's where you want to be forever. And as you lie in your bed in those morning hours, you just start singing that song over and over again. You start singing, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Surely thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You sing that song over and over again, and then just before dawn, one of your messengers knocks on the door and then bursts into your bedchamber and he says, O oh, king, the plague has stopped. And you say, what? How? When? And the messenger says to you, I, I don't know exactly how to explain it. It doesn't seem to have stopped by people, but it seems to have stopped geographically right on the outside of Jerusalem at Aruna's threshing floor. The plague stopped. And you grab your robe and you, you put on your sandals and you begin to run with a speed you have not attained for years, running down the halls. Royal officials are, are, are coming out of their own chambers asking, what's going on? And you yell over your shoulder, I've got to get to Aruna's threshing floor. And they don't know what's going on, but they figure they need to be where you are. And so they come trailing after you. You go as fast as your old legs will carry you. And now you've outside the city and you're at Aruna's threshing floor. And you say, this place feels holy. You get a sense that this, instead of a threshing floor, has become 
a place of mercy, a place of grace. And without thinking about it, you know what you have to do. You, you turn to Aruna and you say, Aruna, how much for this threshing floor? And Aruna is nobody's fool. You don't sell things to the king. You give things to the king. And so Aruna says to you, oh, king, let me give it to you. You can have the land. You can have my oxen to have a sacrifice. You can have some wood for my threshing sledges to be able to burn. Lord, my king, I just give it to you. But you smile and you say, no, no, no. I will not give to God a sacrifice that costs me nothing. Will you take fix 50 shekels? And Aruna says, yes. You turn to the royal treasurer, one of the guys who came out of the palace with you, and you say, give him the 50 shekels. He's fumbling for 50 shekels in a bag of money he carried. And you, though you're old and things hurt, you go and you pick up a rock and you move it to a place and you get another rock and your officials realize what you're doing. And so they join with you and you're building a makeshift altar. You, you cut up the wood and you begin to burn it. You slaughter the ox and you begin to offer it as a sacrifice to the God who had mercy. A God who had let goodness and mercy follow you all the days of your life. And as you stand before that altar, you begin to sing, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And your officials join in and they begin to sing with you. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And you sing your way through that song and you look to the east, to the Mount of Olives, just as the sun is breaking over the peak. And in a moment, God grants you a vision a thousand years into the future. And you can see your great-grandson many times removed coming down that mountain riding on the back of a donkey. People waving palm branches and they're singing a different song. Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. For the Savior, the Son of David has come. And you realize, you realize that it will be one of your descendants who will be the Savior. He will be the sacrifice that cost God everything. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for giving your son Jesus as a sacrifice. We know it cost you cost you everything. We cannot fathom such love. For those of us who follow Jesus, remind us that you are our shepherd. For those who do not know Jesus, I pray they would find Jesus and let him shepherd their lives. In his name we pray. Amen.
Now, I don't know how this message struck you this morning. I don't know where it spoke to you. Maybe you're like me and you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And you realize that sometimes it's hard to let God be your shepherd. I want to give you a homework assignment, if I can. Will you begin every day this week simply praying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I think it'll help you. Now, maybe, maybe there's another part of the message that spoke to you. You realize that even though you have sinned, that God still is with you. He wants to forgive you. Maybe you need to embrace that forgiveness. It could be that you don't know Jesus as your Savior. And today, you need to invite Jesus to be your shepherd. You need to confess to him your sins and tell him that you have failed, but you want to accept his guidance and his forgiveness in your life. You turn your life over to him. Maybe God is asking you to make a sacrifice that'll cost some money or some time or some investment of care. Don't give to God a sacrifice that costs you nothing. Whatever way God is speaking to you, I'd like to hear about it. Especially if you have invited Jesus to be your Savior today. Would you drop me a line? My email is claysmith at adbc.org. claysmith at adbc.org. God bless you all. I look forward to hearing from you. I look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for joining us for this service from Alice Drive Baptist Church. Alice Drive is one church with two locations. We have a location at the corner of Wise Drive and Loring Mill Road in Sumter. That location has services at 8.30 on Sunday morning, which is a traditional service, two contemporary services, one at 9.45 and one at 11, and then a service on Monday night for people who can't make it on Sunday, and that service is at 7 o'clock. We also have a location called Pocala Church. It meets in Pocala Springs Elementary School on Bethel Church Road in Sumter. That location has two services at 9.45 and 11. I hope we will see you in person very soon. I'm Clay Smith, the lead pastor at Alice Drive Baptist Church in Sumter. Check us out at alicedrive.org. God bless you. Hope to see you soon.